What AI does and what makes it both powerful and scary is it has this ability to continuously learn and adapt with minimal, if any, human intervention. That was the voice of Bill Schmarzo, one of the most recognized industry figures in the field of data science and artificial intelligence. Bill is former Chief Technology Officer for Dell EMC, the number one business leader influencer in business intelligence, and honorary professor in the Cairn School of Business and Economics at NUI Galway. He is my guest in this podcast for the Kush Korber series of Artificial Intelligence and Human Creativity. Together we explore the ethics of artificial intelligence, data and creativity, and what role does education play in this emerging field. My name is Dr. Murray Scott, lecturer in Business Information Systems, and I began by asking Bill, what are the benefits of artificial intelligence and why should people be excited by its impact? The positive side is our ability to do more with less. And what I mean by that is that using AI and very granular data, we can make very precise decisions across a wide range of use cases, everything from you know, from business and organizational to healthcare, to education, to housing, to society, diversity issues, through environmental issues, we, we can start to segue away from making overly generalized policy and operational decisions that have led to lots of inequities in society and, 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 and move to an environment where we're making very precise decisions that help people but actually costs less. Now, it seems like having our cake and eating it too, but that's, that's the real key of what AI can do. When coupled with this very granular big data we have out there. Um, so to me, that's the exciting thing is that, is that no matter what organization you are, no matter what size organization you are, we can start transitioning the decision-making we make as corporations, organizations, universities, societies, governments, we can start transitioning from making decisions based on averages to making decisions based on predicted propensities. That's, that's a hard shift in how people think about things, but the ramifications are, are staggering. And, and here's one of the things where I, I, I think, Marie, you're going to see this pop up more and more, is that where today we are forced, for example, during a pandemic, we had this huge trade-off. Is it the economy or is it healthcare? Do we shut down the economy to to survive the pandemic? Do we open up the healthcare? I mean, we had this either-or conversation. And I'll be honest with you, that's BS. It shouldn't have been an either-or. It should have been an and. We can have economic growth and good healthcare. Right? We can have economic growth and environmental, you know, environmental issues resolved. We can do both. But when you're making decisions based on averages, I think you're forced to make those trade-offs. When you're making decisions based on predicted propensities of the individuals, then you can have the end environment. I, I guess a big part of this is you know, educating people in you know, how do they use data and how do they bring data into those kinds of scenarios where they're making big decisions and they're comparing. What are some of those challenges in developing that responsible type of AI environment? Well, there's there's a lot of discussion regarding data literacy. And data literacy actually has two components. And what, what I do, I hear the word data literacy, I, I break it apart. There's a data awareness component 
And then there's an AI literacy component. And let me separate the two. From a data awareness perspective, people need to understand how their data is being used or how it could be used and need to be very vigilant in how they protect their own data. We, we don't do that very well today. And so there needs to be much more of an awareness effort put in place and associated guidelines, regulations that, you know, personal data is not being used for nefarious reasons. So there, that's an awareness issue. And we need to attack that. And we don't. We, we, we kind of just gloss over that, you know, we don't even talk about, you know, what data is being captured about you. And, you know, people don't understand when they use their iPhones, how much data is being captured by these. And so there, there needs to be an issue, education on awareness on data. But then there needs to be this, this, this conversation, this education on AI. And what does AI do? What AI does and what makes it both powerful and scary is it has this ability to continuously learn and adapt with minimal, if any, human intervention. It's going to learn really, really fast. So the challenge becomes in that kind of environment where you have a data awareness and AI literacy, and you have an environment that can learn faster than any human could ever learn, right, is you need to be very careful about how you define the variables around which you want to drive that learning. We always get back to a very fundamental conversation I think is very at the heart of the whole AI challenge, which is understanding how do organizations, how do societies, how do governments define how they create value? Let's talk about how you create value. If you're only creating value, if you're a social media company and the only thing you're worried about is driving ad revenue, if that's your focus, as you're looked at, you're looking at likes and views and shares, right? Then you're going to end up with confirmation bias. You're going to have the AI models just to focus on that and they're going to continue to drive. And if you like a particular topic, they're going to inundate you with that topic. So you click on it more and more and more. All right. That's not a problem with the AI models. AI models only will do what you program them to do. And the program in an AI model happens around the AI utility function, which are the variables around which you want that AI model to try to optimize. So when we start thinking about AI, both the power and the, and the concerns around it, it all starts at making sure that we've got a thorough understanding of the variables and metrics, the KPIs around which we want the AI models to optimize, which brings us back to a data awareness conversation to make sure we know what data we've got that supports that. I suppose the key thing here really is that AI is incredibly powerful, but ultimately it's humans that actually drive it and actually control it. Hey, AI is not smart at all. AI is really stupid. It just, given the variables you tell it to optimize against, it's just going to continue to learn and learn and try to try different things and learn and learn. And you're spot on. When, when, when AI models go wrong, it's not, you know, the Terminator was not, wasn't an evil creature. He was only doing what its AI model, utility model, told it to do, right? It wasn't the Terminator's fault as whoever wrote the AI utility functions. That was their problem. Yeah, and you know, ultimately, it was it was the kid John Connor that actually taught the Terminator. It's you know the ethics behind what it actually should be doing. Um, it, it it went inside. John Connor went inside and reprogrammed the AI utility function to take in a wider set of of, of variables, which is exactly, I think, the Murray the spot that we've got into is that we think that AI is the is the realm of the data scientists, and I'm going to argue that AI is a realm of being human. 
I think ultimately what AI is going to do, AI is going to force humans to become more human. And we'll have to embrace, you know, things like empathy and sympathy. We'll have to have, make sure AI models, not just look at financial and operational metrics of trying to optimize. We look at things like, you know, customer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, uh, society, diversity, um, environmental issues. And I'd even argue spirituality becomes a key component that you have to put inside in order to have AI models that really do reflect the human nature. Are there specific things that we can do um, to ensure accountability or oversight or governance for either corporate organizations or governments to make sure that these kinds of ethical considerations are taken into account? That's a really hard question because a minute you do need to have some guidelines and rules regarding ethical use of, of data and AI models. But you also, whenever you bring in rules and regulations, there are always organizations that just ignore them. And so it, it ends up being a disadvantage for those organizations that play by the rules and, and an advantage for those who are not afraid. So the part of the problem has always been, how do we enforce rules and how do we give teeth to them? We actually probably need fewer rules but the rules we do need to have need to be enforced. When somebody violates a privacy rule, when we have an app that goes into your iPhone and scrapes your entire contact list and then uses that to do, I mean, there should be severe penalties for organizations like that. And I mean, I mean, maybe even criminal charges need to be put in place. We need to make the illegal stuff, make the cost of doing illegal activities very onerous. And humans are pretty simple. We try to optimize the benefits and minimize the costs. That's what we do. We're pretty simple creatures. So if you want to change behaviors, put teeth out there that enforces those behaviors. So I think that you know, instead of overly trying to burden this thing and, and box it into a point where no one can really get value from it, the rules we need are probably pretty simple. I suppose like a specific kind of um, area where this has an influence is the idea of digital nudging, because again, this is an area where within digital nudging, um, you know, we all use technologies, we use social media and so on. And, uh, you know, they're quite sophisticated tools now to encourage certain behaviors, to modify behaviors or to encourage you to go and do something like purchase that that hotel room on booking.com or something. So I guess your thoughts on the ethics of digital nudging and, you know, because certainly it's something that governments use as well as uh, uh, commercial organizations. Well, first off, nudging has been around forever. I mean, mm-hmm. go back to, you know, the car commercials back in the 50s and auto shows, and they always had scantily clad women hanging on top of these cars and you're wondering, oh, are you selling cars or what are you selling? So we've, we've always sort of used advertising and imagery to sort of nudge people's behaviors. You know, you, um, you know, so I'm not as concerned about the digital nudging as much as I'm concerned because I think nudging is all around us. I think advertising is all about nudging you certain directions and digital just gives you more tools, more precise tools to figure out how to really influence your behaviors. It gets back to intent. What is the intent of what you're trying to do? Now you could argue that digital nudging or nudging people overall to have a healthier diet, you know, to eat less, you know, sugar, to eat more vegetables, you know, that's the kind of nudging that benefits, you know, most everybody. 
except of course, if you're making candies and, and popcorn and, and chips and sodas, right? In fast food restaurants, you probably don't like that kind of nudging. So this nudging thing is just a way of life. We're going to have to deal with it. And that's why I think instead of worrying about the nudging that's going on, I think it's being aware of what data is being collected about you and understanding how AI models might be used to influence that, to influence your behaviors. And just, we teach a class, one of the sessions we do in my class is around um, uh, critical thinking. Really, it's, I think it's up to us not just to teach our students in college, but I think we teach this in, in, in middle school and grade school. And I think as adults, we, we have to have a whole ongoing conversation around critical thinking. We see this today with some of the less than honest information that's being shared about COVID. And I, I know I, I, I've got some, I, I don't like going on Facebook. I recently went there because I had a birthday and I wanted to say thank you to people who said happy birthday to me. And then I wanted to get off because I'm, I'm really quite concerned about how the nudging that Facebook does and how their AI models are so biased. And there's a couple of my friends who I had just, I shouldn't have read any of them, but they, you know, they have these wacky theories they're, they're, they're behind. And, and when I asked them, I say, so, you know, I did, I, this is a mistake, I know, but I asked them, so what is your rationale for that? And I don't ever, I don't want opinions. What's your rationale? Well, we found this doctor who said this is true. And I said, well, do you check that? So I, I did some investigation and the doctor was a history doctor, wasn't a medical doctor. I said, so you listen to a history doctor who's making recommendations around vaccinations and you're ignoring medical doctors who have a, so it, it, I, I almost forgot where I'm going with this thread, but it's, it's just the idea that, that critical thinking, you have to understand, think about the source, always be dubious the data you've got in front of you, you know, check and double check and triple check. What are people have agendas, understand what their agenda is. So long answer here, Marie, and I apologize, but critical thinking is just, it's something that not only we have to teach to our students, but it's something that we need to constantly as a society need to revisit. And it's a key part of the data awareness, AI literacy conversation. I was just going to say that it absolutely comes back to that issue of, you know, awareness and an understanding of what data you're giving away, because ultimately it's your data and understanding um, what what that means um, and there's more of a uh, a need for people to understand that they're taking personal responsibility so you know we talk about responsible ai in terms of companies and so on but it, a lot of it comes back to you know taking individual responsibility for what data you're giving away and knowing how it's going to be used i i, I get frustrated by the victim society the victim mentality was well they, they use my data against me well, you gave them that data. You downloaded the app. You clicked the yes, I've read and accept all the terms and conditions, but you never read it. And now, and now you want to blame somebody else for a decision you made. It just is drives me nuts. And I think that gets back to this data awareness and personal accountability. You, we have to demand personal accountability. We can't blame others for the decisions that we make. You mentioned at the start of the podcast, you know, this um, issue of data awareness and data literacy. So I just wondered, could we focus maybe more on the data literacy now in terms of creativity and, you know, imagination um, and how that's used? And um, I suppose, you know, what do you mean by data literacy and what kind of data uh, literacy is needed 
to enable people to be creative. I love the segue. I, I think it's it's one of the things we found in the data awareness space is we end up running lots of what we call envisioning exercises with our customers and our students because they don't really understand what they can do with the data. Um, there's been nothing really put out there that really helps them understand this. And so you're spot on in that we, we need to help people start to imagine how they could use data to improve their condition, to drive better outcomes. And, and so a lot of that ideation, that envision is around ideation, trying to ideate where and how we might use this. You know, that's kind of like, you know, I'm a huge fan of design thinking because I think what design thinking does a marvelous job of is democratizing ideation. To me, that's the heart of design thinking. We're going to democratize ideation, but it isn't just random ideation. What I love about design thinking, it's ideation around a customer. We're going to basically walk in the shoes of our customers. We're going to use personas. We're going to use journey maps. We're going to use all these different design techniques out there, really understand what the customer is trying to do. And then we're going to ideate across a diverse set of stakeholders to figure out how do we make that customer journey more successful for them? How do we improve the experience? To me, it's, that, is, that is one of the superpowers of, of our generation is our ability to embrace the outward-centric, outward-in-centric nature of design thinking and really walk, I mean, we, traditional product companies always have an inside out perspective. They build a product and they go, hmm, I wonder who will buy this. No, the best way I think going forward is to understand what are your, what are your customers trying to do? Understand them intimately, ideate and co-create with them, and then build things and services that help them be successful. So again, I think that, I think it's a very natural maturation from this data awareness conversation to a envisioning ideation process using design thinking to help people figure out where and how can I use data to make better decisions. And so there's, it seems that, you know, in terms of data and AI, um, you know, paradoxically is actually making it more important for human involvement, more important for human uh, creativity in white collar work. And so the huge growth in data and the massive explosion of big data is actually creating much more of a demand for human uh, creativity in, 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 that, in that kind of work. And, and yes, it, it is. So fundamentally, data in of itself has zero value. Data has no value. In fact, I'd argue that data is a cost, right? If you've got data, you gotta, you got to pay to store it. You got to pay to back it up. You got to pay to protect it. You, by having data, you open yourself up to all kinds of potential regulatory and you know, and and uh, compliance liabilities. So having data is of zero value. So it's not like oil. This is where it's very different. Possession of oil was quite powerful, right? And we fought wars over oil, and we still fight wars over oil. Will we fight wars over data? There's a provocative thought, right? Will we fight wars over data? Probably not, because it's not the possession of data that has the value. It's the use of it. And how do you use it? And what problems are you trying to solve with it? And what kind of decision are you trying to make? And this is where then all that design thinking, that creativity process comes in. Because now I've got all these piece parts. And not all data is of equal value. All oil was basically the same. I mean, if it was West Texas crude, no matter where it was, it was all basically the same. But now data has different value depending on how it's used. And it requires a very creative nature 
figure out how best to bring these different data sources together, how to, how to blend them together, how to bend them together to really help us solve really hard problems, to help us make very difficult decisions. And this, one of the things that I found works best with my data science teams is I always teach my data scientists design thinking techniques. In fact, my data science team has on the team design thinkers who can actually go through the process of helping the data science team to envision. And nowhere does it manifest itself more than in the feature engineering component of data science. We're trying to identify those variables and metrics and those combinations that are better predictors of performance. Feature engineering is not a data science task, not a data scientist task. It's a data science task in the sense the data scientists and the data engineers are going to work with the business subject matter experts with the help of a design thinker to figure out which of these features are the best predictors of performance and behaviors. In terms of uh, design thinking, um, you know, my impression of design thinking is that you need to be very open-minded, very creative, very willing to think outside the box, if, if you like. And is it easier to teach design thinking to students maybe than it is to people in industry is it easier to teach or you know do engineers find it harder to do design thinking i just have this idea of engineers being more structured in their thought processes and maybe does the philosophy of design thinking need more of an open creative mind i'm just wondering you know is there an ideal kind of kind of person who's really good at design thinking and do other people have major challenges with it i think we're all born naturally with a curious foundation it's hard to find a young child, three, four years old, who's not trying to figure out how things work. Um, I, you know, I was, I was young. I took apart my dad's radio. And when I put it back together, I said, look, dad, there was too many parts. I found excess parts in there. You did, you said you didn't need, of course, now it doesn't work, but you know, there were extra. So I, I think we are born with a curious human nature. And what design thinking does is it tries to liberate that curiosity that to a certain part has been smacked and slammed and pounded out of us. Think about everything we do as a society to drown out curiosity. Start with students, right? We have standardized curriculums. We have standardized classes. We have standardized testing. Everything is standardized, right? We do, we do standardize, right? Because we're so interested in having a common average treatment across all of our students, we standardize it. And again, the minute you start averaging anything, right, if you make decisions based on averages, at best, you're going to only get average results. So I think what design thinking does is it seeks to overcome and unleash that curiosity it's been, that's embedded in us naturally. It's been buried down, you know, and the, maybe the reason why engineers struggle the most because they go through the most regimented training and education where there is a right answer for how you do things. And we know that's BS. There are many different answers how we solve things. And the challenge is, is how do you brainstorm a diverse set of ways to solve that problem before you converge on a few that you're going to go try? And so I think that I think everybody is capable of being creative. I don't think it's a certain type of person. I think it's in all of us. But what we have to do is help people to realize and to re-spark that. And so, again, maybe some people can't make that transition because they're so they're so regimented in a process that they just want to follow that process. Click one, do this, insert the A into B kind of thing. 
but it's inside of all of us. And I will tell you that in a lot of projects that I've run, the best ideas have come from the most unlikely people. But I will say one thing about the unlikely people who have the best ideas. They're typically not the people who sit in the ivory tower. The people with the best ideas are the people at the front lines who are the blue collar workers who are engaging with customers who are engaging running the operations. Those are the people who have the best ideas. And so what design thinking does for those people is it helps them to realize they've got all this latent insights and knowledge inside of them. And we're basically going to unleash that to help solve some very wicked hard problems. So I guess I'm thinking about what can any of our goal do um, as a, you know, an educational institution to help prepare our students for this new reality and encourage them to be more creative. And I suppose, you know, we do teach uh, design thinking. We try and engage our students, I guess, with, you know, industry, you know, as you're saying, to give them as much uh, real world experience as they can to tackle some of the big problems. Something that you mentioned earlier on was the critical thinking piece, um, because as well as the, you know, creative thinking and the practical experience, critical thinking, you know, is obviously key to bring into that into that mix. Is there anything else that you think about that we, that we can be doing as a university to help prepare yeah. students? You can't be afraid to fail. Mm. That's, that's the heart. If you think there's only one answer, then when you find that answer, you stop looking. And sometimes what you end up doing is you end up compromising on the least worst option. But if you're constantly seeking to find even a better one, then you can synergize to the best, best option. But that only comes willing, willingness to let allow failure to happen. And failure is really, again, when you get into corporations, you, they don't like to talk about failure, right? And, and even in some schools, you know, again, I get back to engineering and mathematics. You know, there, there's the one, you, you know, you, you figure out the calculus and there's one answer, right? Well, there's one answer in math. There's not one answer in life. And so to find that one answer requires lots of trying, failing, learning, and trying again, you, you know, I'm, I love this, this, this phrase that I, that I like to champion that, that the, the economies of learning are more powerful than economies of scale. And that what I mean by that is that the, the organizations and the people who are going to survive are those who are willing to continuously try, learn or fail, learn again, try again, fail again. So I think as, 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 as a university at Galway, you have to encourage failure. And the, the willingness to try things. I also think there are there are three fundamental skills. I, and I, I, when I talk about future-proofing careers, I think there are three fundamental skills that people need to really understand as we go forward. One is, I call it, uh, you know, data science, which is really the language of technology. Right? Data science is about understanding how to dig through all this data to uncover the customer product and operational insights that are sources of value. Keep, keep that phrase value and kind of pin that word value here. I then use design thinking as a way to teach a world of trying and failing and also embracing unlearning that you take something you thought was the way to do it and you unlearn it. And it's all about the idea of how do I leverage my natural curiosity? How do I work closely with, my, with the customers, my consumers, so that I understand where and how value is created. So again, there's that word value again, pin it up here. And then there's economics, right? Which is all about the, about the creation and distribution of wealth or value. All three of those things, 
data science, design thinking, and economics all circle around how do you create value. And so to me, that's the really hard, that's the most important starting point that every university, we should be teaching this. Every, every time I talk to customers, we should be teaching the fact is how does your organization define value creation? And what are the KPIs and metrics against which you're going to measure that? I will argue right now that the KPIs and metrics that the organization uses to measure how they create value says more about that organization than any fictional mission statement they might have created. Because a mission statement sits on a wall somewhere and it's like nice to have. The KPIs are how you're running your day-to-day. And so that is really the heart. And that's something we need to teach we're gonna, we, we need to demand more from the, how we're measuring success. It isn't just financial. It isn't just operational. It's got to include customer, employee, partners, environmental, society, diversity, and spirituality. Once we understand the value conversation, now our students are prepared. They're prepared to have a conversation around how do I use data and analytics to become more effective. They're prepared to have a conversation around how do I use design thinking to liberate ideation and, and get everybody, bring everybody into the process and we transition from the least worst option to the best, best option. And how do I leverage economics, figure out how do I actually create, distribute, and monetize value? I guess it's that challenge of trying to mesh all these different value dimensions together. Um, because, you know, some of it's going to be economic value, some of it's going to be public value. Um, you know, there's so many different types of value. And at some point, you're going to have potentially some, you know, difficulties in reconciling values. That, conflict. That, that you're going to have conflict. Incongruous, yeah. Yeah. That, so, remember, I said earlier, there is not only one answer. Mm. As humans, we know this. We know every day we're forced to make very trade-off decisions. We're trade-off decisions between work and family and health. And we're making decisions as humans every day across a diverse set, environmental issues and society issues. We as humans do that, which is why I think what AI is going to ultimately do is going to force humans to become more human, that we're going to have to think that what are the wide range? And by the way, if you don't have diversity, or if you don't have conflict, if you don't have friction, you'll never grow. If, you, if everybody believes the same stupid thing, then that becomes the, not, not just the norm, that becomes the top, that becomes the ceiling. I don't want to work with people who agree with me. I want to work with people who bring different perspectives, not different opinions. I want different perspectives. I want different rationale. And then I want to take those different rationale and figure out, okay, what can I do with my rationale plus their rationale plus their rationale to create something better? Again, I I mentioned earlier, I think it's really important that we don't compromise on the least worst option, but we embrace all these diverse perspectives so we synergize to the best, best option. And I think universities are such a good place to, uh, you know, embody that uh, philosophy, if you like, because, you know, we are, you know, diverse. We, you know, embrace and encourage diversity of views. We try and teach our students to, you know, be respectful of, of other opinions that might be different from ours and try and get to that point where we are making those trade-offs and we're understanding and accepting that, you know, society is very complex, that there's going to be multiple value impacts of whatever we do and trying to understand and trade off what those impacts are. Very like in the pandemic just now where, um, you know, you might try and uh, reduce travel restrictions um, to stop the spread of the virus, but you have to trade that off with the economic impacts 
of preventing travel. Hey, Marie, I think you've nailed it on the head. I think universities can play a huge role in this. And, and, but it's not just your students. I think you have an obligation, not an opportunity, but an obligation to carry that out to society. I know at Galway, when I, when I, whenever I was there, I do a, like a, a lecture, they bring in town people are always invited, right? And I think that's, I think that's critical. I think the universities sit within a society, which a society can't be just the students. It has to be far reaching. You know, Galway in particular has an opportunity to reach and influence almost all of Ireland and how they think about what goes on here. That to me, that is the power of a university is the fact that you can not only educate the students on campus, but you can have a continuous education program that does something that no other institute really does very well. And then again, I'm, I'm going to not say that's an opportunity. I'm going to say it's an obligation back on you to have that sort of, that sort of aspect that says, what are we doing for everybody who sits around the city of Galway? What are we doing for everybody who sits and lives in Western Ireland? What are we doing for the entire country of Ireland to help basically, you said, embrace diversity, embrace conflict, synergize versus compromise? Well, that's a really nice kind of segue into the last section of, of the interview where, you know, I'm very keen to know what you think. You know, you've held you know, a number of senior roles in, in large organizations, so you have a really good understanding of the global, you know, industry and society and so on. Um, and I'm interested to know what you think about Ireland and how well Ireland is, is placed globally to deal with some of the challenges of this fourth industrial revolution. I, I think I think Ireland's in a very unique position in a positive sense. You, you've obviously got a strong entrepreneurial technology backbone. Um, you've got great educational systems. So with those as your foundation, you're in a great position. The there's also a, a growing interest in in design thinking and how do we drive innovation. They start off as within universities, but they, they quickly need to find their way into the governments um, and how they think. There's the, the biggest challenge that every country is going to have is their um, ruling government. I don't know your government well enough, but I do know from my university experiences, and I, I've met some folks that did a presentation at Cork, and obviously I have a very, very solid feeling for, for Galway. Um, I, I just think there's, a, there's the right culture there for you to do this as a, as a country, that you can do something that, that much larger countries can do. Interesting thing, the, to me, the, the organizations overall that have the most success with data science tend to be those that are smaller versus bigger. And the reason why the smaller organizations have an advantage because they can rally the troops more inter- more easily. And it's not only the senior level people who need to support and, and push down authority and decision-making down to the, to the ranks, but it's the grassroots people who are reaching up saying, I'm ready for more authority. I'm ready to take on more responsibility. I'm ready to be accountable. I think Ireland's in a great position to do that as a country. There's a handful of countries, I think, who are well-positioned for that, and there is no one as well-positioned as Ireland to do that. Well, that's very inspiring to hear, and it's very, you know, it's very encouraging as well. I'll maybe ask you uh, one last question just to uh, uh, just to round up the interview. Um, and, you know, you've spoken to our students a number of times and given them fantastic, you know, insights from your career. 
for the students, you know, especially who, who are listening to this, um, what final pieces of advice would you give them perhaps if they're finishing up their programs, their, their, their degrees and they're about to embark on their career, um, you know, within the various kind of things that, that, that we've touched on today, what kind of bits of advice do, uh, would you give them just as they're two, about to go? Two things. Number one, don't be afraid to fail. If, you, you, if you're not failing, you're not learning. In particular, if you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself. So you can't be afraid of failure. So do things, step outside your comfort zone. Don't be afraid to fail, but look at failure as a learning opportunity. And the number two that kind of goes with that is the ability to unlearn, especially as you get older. It's probably one of the biggest challenges that I face in my life is how do I, how do I toss aside concepts and beliefs that I fundamentally believe were critically important 20 years ago? And now today, they're no longer that important. The, the world has changed. The technology has changed. People have changed. So the ability to unlearn is also very critical because when you climb a ladder, at some point, you got to let go of that rung below you. You got to be willing to let go of things that are no longer relevant so you can reach up to the next one and move forward. Those Mars are there sharing his invaluable insights into artificial intelligence and the diverse impacts on society. That brings to an end this edition of the Kush Kerber podcast. Thanks for listening and do join us again for more news on our exciting research, cutting edge innovations and global alumni stories of animal biology.